Hey guys, welcome to the Fellowship Greenville Students Podcast. This week, Matt Dinsky continues our series called Follower, where we'll be navigating what it means to be a fully committed follower of Jesus. Matt talks about the 99% follower, and we look at the story of the rich young ruler in Mark 10, verses 17 through 31. We look at how Jesus calls this man to come and follow him, but asks him to give up his idol of wealth. Matt talks about how, as long as we hold on to the one thing, Jesus can never be our only thing. We hope you enjoy this message. Thank you guys so much and welcome to Fellowship Greenville students. We are so glad you're here. My name is Matt Dinsky, student ministry pastor here at FG Students. And if it's your first time here ever or first time in a while or you're a regular man, we just want to welcome you and let you guys know that you're loved here and we believe that God loves you, we love you, and we believe you have a place to belong right here in the family of God. And we're so thankful you're here to learn from God's Word and His Spirit as He speaks to us tonight. I'm really excited about uh, tonight. I'm excited about this series that we're in. So welcome, everyone. Uh, as you guys know, I don't know if you, if you guys know this or not, but I have some kids. You guys... Are you... Are you aware of this, my, my family? Yeah, I never talk about them. I've got some kids. Who said, who gagged? Rivers. You just gagged at my kids, man. I just heard a, Ugh! I don't, I just, no, I'm going to, I'm going to pray over you. I, I'm, I'm praying for your soul. Um, I have some kids. I have three kids. And my oldest one, Trent, is five years old. I'm just messing with you, Rivers is five years old, and, um, and I just love him to death. In this past year, though, I've, I've noticed this thing he's, he's started to do. Now, if you've ever met my son, my oldest son, then you know he's incredibly tender. He's very sweet. He's uh, sensitive to those around him. He's very good at understanding when people are hurting, and he gets confused by that and asks some really good questions. Uh, and so he's very kind. But I've noticed over the past year, something's been going on. So if you're in my house, we've got a, a room where like all the toys are. It's, it's technically my living room, but no one calls it that. It's the toy room, right? Uh, because the toys have spread like a virus. They've just encroached. And like there's parents in the room, you know what I'm talking about. Like you, you try your hardest, but it, it, there's no hope. So we have a toy room. And in the toy room, I like things uh, or, as organized as we can. And so we have like these baskets. And in one basket, it's like action figures, figurines, superheroes, things like that. And then in another, it's like anything that goes, cars, trains, planes, stuff like that. Uh, and then we've got a basket for like electronic stuff. Uh, then we've got a basket for like puzzles and, you know, more, I don't know, head, head thinking stuff. And we've got a costume basket where they dress up. And then we've got kind of a catch-all miscellaneous and whatever. And we've got a basket for different kinds of balls and, and a basket for my sweet baby girl, um, Olive, and like all of her cuddly stuff. Like we've got baskets of toys everywhere. And my son, my oldest son, Trent, he's really, really good at sharing. He's very good at including his little brother, Gray, who's, who's uh, got, coming up on three years old this summer. He's, in, he's good at including with him and he'll share with him and they play great together. And I love to hear them playing and their imagination and these like, like sound effects they do and all this stuff. But I've noticed in this past year, so, so we have that system of toys, but I've started to find these other areas around the house that Trent has made. So it'll be like where the couch meets the corner of, of the room, there's like this little gap there, and there's like a, a stockpile of these little toys back in there. I'm like, oh, that's curious. 
How did these get here? Or if I open a drawer, like in the kitchen, all of a sudden I'll find like a few toys stacked up in there. Or a, a Ziploc bag with like nothing but Ninjago Lego figurines stashed away somewhere. And what I've noticed over the past year is my oldest, Trent, has started to create these special places for his most prized toys. Yeah, it's really sweet. Yeah. <laughs> but is that Rivers? I, she gagged again, guys. This, to my five-year-old, man, how, how could you? The audacity. Uh, it's really sweet, except, except simultaneously, it's not. Because what he's doing is, like, if, if Gray wants to play with, my, my middle, if Gray wants to play with something, Trenton's like, oh, yeah, like, Gray, let's play together, blah, blah. But if Gray ever finds one of these secret toys, then all of a sudden, like, I can tell on Trent's face, like, panic, like, what are you doing with my toy, right? The word mine. What are you doing with my toy? And he'll, like, look around the room for something cool, and he comes over, and he's so sweet. He's like, here, Gray, you can play with this if you want to. But really what he's trying to do is trade so he can get back the toy he really wants. Listen, you guys are, like, celebrating this. This is not good. (laughs) Like, you guys are like, hmm, hmm, interesting. He does what now? Yeah. And he hides it there? Mm, Okay. No, this is not good. We need to snuff this out. What he's doing is he's giving the impression of generosity when, in fact, it's very selfish. He's got these select few toys that if you touch, it's like, no, 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 those are my, how did you get that? That's my toy. And it's just, it's like a, a miniature robot and a mini ninja and some Lego things and then like one random bouncy ball and then like half of a hickory nut. I don't know, man, but he's just got like these collections and and those are his prized collections and he's incredibly generous if if gray ever wants to play he'll share like gray let's play here you can have all this stuff but that one section is off limits in fact a couple weeks ago we recently got him maybe you guys know what these are bakugans (laughs) i don't know i never played with them anyway it's actually pretty cool it's it's like a little plastic ball and it comes with these tokens and if you roll the ball over the tokens, it activates this magnet inside, and the whole ball like transforms into this like beast thing. It's pretty sweet. I mean, every <laughs> every kid's dream. It's like, oh yeah. So we made like a minefield with magnets. And we were rolling it through. But but here's the thing: we played with it one time, and then he wanted it put away, and not just put away. But this is the first toy that he wanted put as high as I could possibly put it out of sight, and he himself has never played with it since. He loves it so much that he's willing to forego playing with it just so that his brother doesn't see it and desire to play with it. That's how special the Bakugan is <laughs> to Trent. And I asked him one time, I was like, hey, buddy, can Gray play with this? Gray wasn't in the room. I knew better than to ask in front of Gray. I was like, hey, could Gray play with this? And Trent was like, no. And I was like, well, buddy... What, what happens if we buy Gray a Bakugan? Are you going to want to play with Gray's? And he was like, well, yeah, obviously. And I was like, no, you don't understand. Like, if, if you want to play with his, he gets to play with yours. But I don't want him to play with mine. Like, in his mind, this is the sacred toy right now. And even he won't play with it at the cost uh, or for the purpose of no one else getting to play with it. Like, that's how sacred it is. He's got this one special thing that he withholds. As generous and as caring and as loving as my son is, he, he's got this... The selection of prize toys that he, he doesn't want anyone to take part in. They're his. We're trying to work on that. We're trying to talk about sharing and taking turns and generous, generosity and things like that. But right now, he's got a whole section of stuff in his mind 
He's generous with everything else. Greg can share. It's all his. We, we can play together. But, but the Bakugan? No, 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 no. We keep that up high and out of sight. That's not for him. And I was thinking about my son as I was studying over this passage, and, and I started thinking, are we that way in our faith with Jesus? Like all these categories in our lives, we're like, Jesus, you can have this, I'm open with this, I'm vulnerable with this, you can have that, I'll surrender that, oh, that's good, you can take that too, Jesus, I love you, I want you, you can have it all, oh, 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 except, 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 this one thing that we got hidden way back in the back, and we don't want Jesus to touch it, we don't want him to look at it, we don't want to give it to him. It's like this one thing we don't want to let go of. It could be a material thing. Like you're just so afraid that if you fully surrender to Jesus, he'll ask you to give up something material. And I, and I know in our culture, materialism is rampant. And so it wouldn't be too far-fetched to think that you might have a material object, maybe your phone, hello, hi, hi that you just don't want Jesus to control. You don't want him to set the parameters on. You don't want him to define for you how to use it. It may be a material thing. It may be a behavior thing. Like you've just got this one thing that when you're having a rough day or your parents got mad at you or you got in an argument or you failed a test, you've got this one behavior thing that that's how you cope. That's how you have a better day. That's what you do. And you know that it's wrong, but you willfully do it anyway because it's just, hey man, that's my one thing. You know what I mean? Like that's my thing. Everything else Jesus can have, but I, I've got the I got the Bakugan of my spiritual life, and I don't want to give that to Jesus. Over the past few weeks, we've been in this series called Follower, and we've been looking at what it means to be a follower of Jesus by looking at at case studies, at narratives in the Gospels of people interacting with Jesus who weren't followers. They they had different motives. They, They thought they were or desired to be, but they just weren't quite there. Week one, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the consumer follower, those who follow Jesus because of the benefits they receive from him, not for the relationship they have with him. What can I get out of this? That's the consumer follower. Last week, we looked at the curious follower. I'm very curious about Jesus. I like him a lot, but I'm not willing to actually commit for what it would cost me and my reputation. I'm curious, but I'm not committed. And this week, we're going to continue the follower series. We're going to look at the 99% follower. Like, you are there. You are almost there. Everything is right. You're right at the line. Everything looks good in, in, in word and action and deed. Everything lines up. You are there, except, except we just have this one thing. We just don't want Jesus to touch or have say over or have control over. We just don't want to surrender that to him. It's the 99% follower. You're almost there. But the thing about following Jesus, as we see all throughout the Gospels, as we see all throughout his teachings, Jesus doesn't really offer this middle ground idea. Like, truly, Jesus never offers a percentage idea. What he calls us to is, is to go all in with him. There, there's really no middle ground. It's not like, well, I'm at step one of 10 of following Jesus. No, you, you are or you're not. And if you are, it's 100%. That's what he invites us into. But I would be willing to bet that many of us in this room or in our culture or in our country find ourselves in this category, the 99% follower. It's like we love him, we talk about him, we love Jesus, yeah, Jesus. But there's this one thing that's like, oh, he, but I don't want him to touch that. Like, he gets to have say over that? No, I don't know about that. And we're going to look at a story tonight 
of someone who had this one thing that they had a very hard time letting go. So, Mark chapter 10, this is where we're going to be tonight. This is one of my favorite uh, passages in, in the Gospels. It's in the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Different authors recording this interaction with Jesus and this guy. Uh, the character we're going to look at tonight, we don't know his name, but we know a few characteristics of him that the scriptures give us. Number one is, he's young, and so if you're in the room, you should be able to relate. One of the reasons I love this passage so much is because it speaks to the adolescent culture. This is a young guy who's curious about Jesus. He desires to speak with Jesus. He's got some great questions for Jesus, so he's young. The second thing about him that's pretty neat is uh, he's, he's a ruler in his day, uh, so he's got influence. Now, in our culture, one of, one of the familiar words is the idea of being an influencer, right? Social media influencer. You can literally hop up on TikTok, do some moves right now, like, and all of a sudden you got a million subscribers if you land it right. You know what I mean? It's like, oh my gosh, man. The whole idea of influencer. Well, this guy is an influencer. He's got status. He's got a reputation. He's got a reach. He's an influencer. And, and thirdly, he's very wealthy. Scriptures call him very rich. So he's this young guy. He has influence because he's a ruler and he's wealthy. This describes, by and large, the American or definitely uh, southeastern idea of American Christianity, because he's also religious, as we're going to see. Now, you may be in the room thinking right now, dude, I'm not rich. This doesn't... <laughs> I'm not rich, dude. It doesn't apply to me. Like, I'm trying to scratch that McDonald's dollar menu, and, I, and I, <laughs> I get that, all right? But I'm talking comparatively to the rest of the world. We are very well off. Comparatively to most of the world, we are very well off. We suffer from first world problems, right? Oh, my Wi-Fi is slow. That's, you're doing pretty well to be complaining about that. Oh, my phone screen is cracked. You're doing pretty well to be complaining about that. I have to drive a used car, and it's like a 2010 model. Ooh, doing pretty well. <laughs> Compared to the rest of the world, we're pretty wealthy. So this guy's young. He's very well off. He has influence, and he's also got some religion mixed in. And I think this perfectly describes the demographic of southeastern American teenagers. So this is our passage tonight. So Jesus is teaching. He started his public ministry. His reputation has spread. And people are curious about him. People want to talk to him. And where we pick up, Mark chapter 10, verse 17. And as he, that's Jesus, was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's a great question. And Jesus said to him, actually, I want to pause there because I, I, I want to highlight this, this, this question. This young man, I, I don't think at any point in this passage do I get the idea that simply because he has influence and he's wealthy and he's young, I don't get the idea at all that he's arrogant or pious or pompous or any of these things. I think he's genuinely genuinely curious about Jesus, and I think this is a very real question. He sees Jesus traveling, and he runs up, which running in this culture, by the way, is a humiliating thing. It, it, culturally, men did not show their legs in, in Jewish culture back in the day. 
So to be running to expose your legs was already kind of this, like, oh, bro, like, chill, man. But he doesn't care. Self-image is, is out of his head. He genuinely wants to come to Jesus. He's not trying to be too cool. He's not trying to be like, oh, yo, what up, Jay? <laughs> like, I got a question. No, he's not. He's not playing these games. He genuinely is, is curious. He runs up and he kneels before Jesus. He's postured before Jesus at the ankles of Jesus. And he asks him this question. Good teacher or good rabbi, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now that is a question worth asking, am I right? So many of us in this room have at some point probably paused on this question. Even if you're in the room and you're like, dude, I'm just here because a friend invited me, I'm not really about Jesus, I'm not really about the church, I'm not a Christian, that, that's okay. Like you're on your journey. But typically, most of us in our journey of seeking answers for things beyond this world, at least pause at the consideration of Jesus. It may be late at night, you may be in your bed alone, you may just have this like weird sobering moment where you just have clarity of thought and you're asking like deep philosophical questions, you know, like, and you may pause on the thought of Jesus. He's asking a question that I think many of us can relate to. Uh, It's basically, when I die, how can I know that I'll go to heaven? That's what he's asking. What can I do to inherit eternal life? Now, what's interesting about Jesus' response, let's continue to read. Jesus doesn't answer his question right away. He actually responds to the title this young man gives him, good teacher. Jesus addresses that. Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? Guys, let's, let's insert ourselves into the story because I love Jesus, man. He's the master teacher. You run up to Jesus and you're like, you're, you're at his ankles. Good teacher, what can I do to inherit eternal life? Like you just, you're desperately clinging on, man. He's going to help me. He's going to give my soul hope. He's going to give me a, a picture beyond this life. Good teacher, what can I do? And Jesus is like, why do you, why do you call me good? You're kind of like, huh? <laughs> did, I say, did I say something wrong? Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, here's what Jesus is doing in that statement. Jesus is very cleverly making it known to this young man. I am God. Jesus is doing some very clever, like, play on words type, type things here. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So basically, he's, he's, he's taking this young man's uh, title, good teacher, and he's flipping it back on him. In other words, he's saying, do you really know that I'm God? No one's good except God alone. Are you calling me good because you know I'm God? Or is this just flattery? Jesus knows he's God. He's God in the flesh. And he's kind of putting this guy in this, in this position. Why do you call me good? Do you know who you're talking to? Do you, do you know I'm God? Or do you think I'm just a moral teacher, someone who teaches good things to live by? I was having a conversation uh, with a dear friend the other day, and it's weighing on my soul. It really is. But we were on the phone, and, and their faith has evolved over the years. And yeah, yeah, their faith has evolved and we were talking, and, and they told me, Matt, I'm, I'm in this place where, you know, I still, 
I love the teachings of Jesus. And I love the, the person that he was, the things that he modeled and the things that he did. And I don't really pray anymore and I don't really read my Bible anymore and I don't really go to church anymore. But, you know, like I, I just know that God is happy with that. And, and they're claiming like, because of my adoration for Jesus' teachings, because he was a good teacher, I'm in a good place. And the thing about Jesus is he, he, he puts us in this crossroads of, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not in the category of good teachers. I'm in the category of God. Why do you call me good teacher? Because you like my moral teachings? They make you feel good? Or because you actually think I'm God? To claim to follow Jesus' teachings without understanding that he is divine in the flesh actually doesn't follow his teachings because he, he identifies with God the Father numerous times. Anything I've, I've said, it's not me saying it, it's from God. Anything I've done, it's not me doing it, it's from God. Jesus aligns himself with the Father. He takes the title I Am, which is this Old Testament phrase of God, Yahweh. Jesus is God. And he puts this kind of back on this young guy. Why do you call me good? Do you believe I'm God? Because no one's good except God. He doesn't give the young man a chance to answer. He does something very interesting here. Look how the young man comes up. What must I do to inherit eternal life? How is this young man thinking? Not a rhetorical question. How's he thinking? What? I heard it. Works. Action-based. Give me a checklist. Jesus, what can I do? Think about it. He's young. He's got energy. He's, he's powerful. He's got money. He's probably made a lot of business deals. He's got influence. He's probably used to giving a command and having it follow through. He thinks that way. Action-driven, task-oriented, checklist. Jesus, if you just give me the boxes to check, I'll check them, bro. What can I do to inherit eternal life? And what a great question because so many of us ask this same question. Man, I just wish I knew what to do. Is it, is it go to church enough? Is it read your Bible enough? Is it pray enough? Like, how do I know? How can I be for certain that when I die, I will be with Jesus in heaven? What can I do? It's a good question, right? Look at what Jesus does. He, he kind of plays this game with this guy. He's like, all right, you want to know what you can do? You're a checklist guy. Okay. Jesus starts giving him the checklist. He goes all the way back to Exodus chapter 20. When God gives Moses the Ten Commandments, Jesus starts listing those Ten Commandments. If you want to really know what you can do, here's some stuff to do. Here's some commandments to obey. Look what Jesus says. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear, bear false witness. Don't defraud. Honor your father and mother. Yikes on the last one for many of you, right? Like, ooh, <laughs> didn't know that was in there. Look, the young man responds, He's really enthusiastic. You can kind of get this air of like, oh, that's all I got to do? Like, bro, did you hear the list? But for some reason, this young man's like, I got it. He says, teacher, I've kept all these from my youth. What are you talking about, bro? He's called the rich young ruler. When he refers to my youth, what is he like, oh, two years ago? Like, bro, you're titled young in the Bible. What are you talking about from your youth? You're still youth. 
He's like, no, I've done all these since my youth. I mean, this young man is probably thinking from the time I was a child, I have done every single thing on that list, which is interesting. I'm willing to bet he missed Jesus's Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 and 6 and 7, because in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaches on those same things and reveals it's not just that attitude leads to action, it's that your attitude is the same thing as action. So if, you've hate, if you have hatred in your heart, that's equivalent to murder. If you have lust in your heart, that's the, the equivalent to adultery. Jesus teaches this radical teaching, but here he's just focusing on the checklist, and the young man's reading it. He's like, I've done that! That's great! I was raised Jewish. I know the law. I know the Ten Commandments. We studied this. I've done those! Which is a pretty radical claim. Can anybody in here look at that same list and say, Yeah, I'm pretty good. I've done all that since my youth, especially that last one. Come on now. You might say, I've never murdered. You know, I've never committed adultery. I've never bared false witness in a courtroom where a judge has called upon me to give an honest testimony. But honoring your father and mother, man, this young man seems relieved. Teacher, I've kept all these since my youth. Now, what's interesting about the list that Jesus gave him, if you go back to Exodus chapter 20 and read the Ten Commandments, Jesus picks up on number five. So the Ten Commandments are divided into two categories, our relationship with God and our relationship with others. That's why Jesus could sum up the entirety of the Old Testament by saying, love God and love others. In the first four commandments, it focuses on a relationship with God. In the latter six, it focuses on a relationship with others. Jesus touches on the back half, which honestly is is kind of the easier half, our relationship with each other. But the very first commandment in the Old Testament is to have no other gods before the one true God. Or in other words, let nothing sit on the throne of your heart except God above. And that's revealed through the amount of time and attention and energy and devotion that we give things in our lives. Those are called idols. Jesus, I think, intentionally skips over that front part. This young man's like, hey, what can I do? What do I need to do to be saved or to inherit eternal life? Jesus is like, oh, you want to know what you can do? Here's a checklist. Young man's like, I've done all those. But Jesus knows the God of your heart is not the one true God. So look at what the scriptures say. Look at what Jesus does. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Jesus is not trying to play with this dude. He's not trying to trick him. He's he's not trying to like look at his disciples and be like, yo, watch this, I got him pegged. And like, no, he he looks at this young man still kneeling before him with compassion and grace and tenderness. He loves him, and he says, You lack one thing. You can kind of imagine the young man like, okay, man, if all I like is one more box to check, just let me know what it is and I'll do it, bro. Like if I'm just one box away from inheriting eternal life, I'm there. You lack one thing. Jesus says, I want you to go. I want you to sell all that you have. And I want you to give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Now, what's amazing about this command of Jesus that he gives this young man, that phrase, follow me, Jesus has given corporately many times, 
Like he's spoken to crowds with that idea, but to individuals, to individual people, like a one-on-one, this, this personal follow me, he's only done this 12 other times. That being with his 12 disciples. What Jesus is doing with this young man is he's actually inviting him into the discipleship ring with Jesus. He would have been the 13th disciple. Jesus doesn't give the personal invitation to follow him like that very often. He, he's only done it 12 times prior. He does it in crowds, kind of this corporate idea of following him or believing in him. But to follow me physically, to walk with me, to live with me and the, and the crew, to squat up with Jesus. He, he's only done this 12 other times. And he offers a 13th right here. Jesus is giving this young man something incredibly rare. He sees something in him. Jesus looks at him and loves him. He sees his heart. But he knows that on his heart sits a God other than the one true God. And that God is money, is wealth. Jesus had to get to the God of his heart. He had to get that out of the way so that Jesus could take the place. So that Jesus could be the God of his heart. You lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and then you'll have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. Look at how the young man responds. Disheartened, saddened, overwhelmed with grief. By the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He's kneeling at the ankles of Jesus. I mean, he's, he's, he's right there kneeling. Good teacher. What can I do to inherit eternal life? You want to know what you can do? Here's a list. I've done all those things. This is great. Well, one more thing and you're in. Okay, tell me anything. Give it all up. What? Your wealth, your riches, sell it all. Give it to the poor. And then follow me. Live with me. Personal invitation. And the young man couldn't do it. Do you have... A one thing. Do you have something that you're storing up on a shelf somewhere, out of sight, for no one else to see, but you know it's there because it's that special, it's that sacred, it's that precious to you? You don't want anyone else to get at it, even Jesus. It could be a material thing, some possession, some thing. Like if Jesus asked you to give that up, could you do it? Or it could be a behavior thing, some way that you cope, some habit you have, something you do in secret that no one else knows about but you know about, and you know it doesn't honor God. Could you give that up if Jesus asked you to? Jesus is not against possessions. He's not against wealth. Some people read this passage and they're like, oh, see, Jesus expects everyone to give everything up and be poor to follow. No, that's not what he's getting at. He's getting at the God of your heart. The Old Testament, the Ten Commandments, have no other gods before me. Jesus skipped that part, went to the latter five. The young man's like, I've done all this, man. This is great. And now Jesus is going back to, well, if you've really obeyed all the commandments, let's start with number one. Have no other gods before me. Seems like you worship money. Why don't you give that up? And the young man can't. If you have something in your life that you can't give up, you don't own it. It owns you. And Jesus is trying to reveal to this young man, you have a God of your heart already, and it's not me. Why are you calling me good? No one but God is good. You really think I'm God? Because if you do, that money won't hold as much sway as I should. 
That's what Jesus is driving at with this guy. One of the things I've noticed over the years is we are so good with, with the everything category. You know what I mean by that? Like, like I've spoken at conferences and retreats and, and traveled and done all this stuff. And, you know, there's always that, that one night where you have that, like, you know, an invitation to believe in Jesus. We do it at our retreat, Epic, right? Okay, one person's excited about Epic. We do it at our retreat. And it's, <laughs> come on, guys. Bakugan. And, and in that night, there's always this, like, incredibly intimate time of, of worship and, and this connection with our souls to Jesus. And, it, and you kind of get swept up in it, right? Like, it's beautiful. It's a taste of heaven. And you're kind of there and you're worshiping and you're kind of abandoning yourself and what people think of you and, and the spirit is stirring your heart and maybe conviction of sin is happening and you're trying to come to Jesus and, and you're having this moment and we call it a mountaintop experience or I'm on fire for Jesus experience or whatever. And typically the speaker, and I've done this and I do this and I think it's great, but, but we'll do this thing where it's like, yo, who wants to give their life to Jesus tonight? And the room's like, Wow! Who wants to give up everything for Jesus tonight? Me, I do. Take it all. And we're really good with the language, right? We're really good with how we see Jesus. Lord of Lords, Lion and the Lamb. If I had a thousand tongues, I would sing your praises. Like we're so good with the language. You can have it all, Lord. We have these moments of repentance and coming and giving, and you can have everything, you can have it all. And we even do these things where it's like, oh man, what if we got like a, a 30-foot cross, and we hid like spiral-bound notebooks under everyone's seat, and then during the invitation, we would invite them, hey, look under your seat, there's a notebook and a marker, write your sins in the notebook, and then come and nail it to the cross, and then we're going to burn it for Jesus, right? Like, you ever... You ever you ever been to those things? You're like writing your sins down and you look over at your friends list and you're like, oh my gosh. I had no idea. I mean, I'm messed up, but I'm not like that messed up. <laughs> Ew. You know what I mean? And you come and you like nail it to the cross. You're like, Jesus. And those moments are beautiful and wonderful and they're full of surrender and passion and, and declaration that Jesus is king. But if we're really, really honest, sometimes the invitation, who wants to give your life to Jesus or who wants to give everything to Jesus is so far sweeping and so broad and generic, we don't hone in on our one thing. Imagine the invitation a little bit differently. Instead of, who wants to follow Jesus? Who wants to give their everything? If instead it was like, who wants to follow Jesus and identify the one thing in your heart tonight that's holding you back from fully surrendering and worshiping him as king and allowing that to be surrendered and give that to Jesus so that he can fully reign in your heart forever. I think people would be like, lying in the... Let me just add this to my list of sins. <laughs> right? It's so easy sometimes to give the everything, but not think about our one thing. To think about the one thing that holds us back from fully surrendering to Jesus because we're a 99% follower. As long as we hold on to the one thing, 
Jesus can never be our only thing. As long as we hold on to our one thing, Jesus can never be our only thing. And so our faith basically has become this idea of like, man, I want Jesus. I want to follow Jesus. I want to worship Jesus. But it's, it's Jesus plus, right? Like I want Jesus plus the status. I want Jesus plus the wealth. I want Jesus plus my weekend. I want Jesus plus my Saturday nights. I want Jesus plus the phone. I want Jesus plus the influencer. I want Jesus plus the popularity. I want Jesus plus, I want Jesus plus, I want Jesus plus. And none of those things are wrong to have in and of themselves, but if they are the God of your heart, then you can never fully have Jesus because Jesus is not about the 99%. And I know that's hard to hear, but his invitation is hard to hear. His invitation is, man, I want you, I love you, I made you, I want to make you right with God, but I want to be king. Nothing else gets to sit on that throne. It's me. And Jesus looks at this young man and says, what about your money? Why don't you give that up? And he couldn't do it. He left. Now Jesus looked around, this is verse 23, Jesus looked around And said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. His disciples were amazed at at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier, speaking hyperbolically here, speaking for exaggeration, it's easier for a camel. (laughs) I love Jesus, man. He just pulls these things. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished. And they said to him, then who can be saved? Now this is an, this is an interesting response because the crowds following Jesus, for the most part, were not rich. They were like broke people. <laughs> like, hey man, we, we just here for the miracles, to be honest. Like we, we barely scrape them by. They're not wealthy people. And you would kind of expect the response to be different. I'm telling you, it's harder for a rich person to get into the kingdom of heaven than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. You would expect the crowd who's not very wealthy to be like, yeah, good news for us. (laughs) Yeah, give it up for the poor. Right? But they're like, well, then who can be saved? (laughs) Why do they respond this way? Well, we got to understand a little bit about culture 2,000 years ago. In Jewish culture, if you were rich... In Jewish culture, if you were rich, it was a sign, they thought, that you were blessed by God, that you had favor with God. And so for, Je- for Jesus to say how hard it is for a rich person to get into the kingdom, in their minds it's like, but wait, they're rich because they have favor with God. If rich people can't even get in, then what hope do we have? That's how they're processing I mean, it would be the equivalent of Jesus saying today how hard it is for someone who goes to Bible school and then goes to seminary and reads my Bible from cover to cover and then becomes a preacher, how hard it is for them to get into the kingdom of God. You'd be like, what? Man, if they don't have hope, then who has hope? That was kind of the interpretation. A rich person had favor with God. You're saying a camel can fit through a needle easier than someone who's rich going to the... Jesus, then who can get in? 
Jesus says, with man, it's impossible, but not so with God. For all things are possible with God. Now you can see Peter. Peter, Peter, we love Peter, right? He's like the dude who asks the questions everyone's thinking, but too is afraid to say. Peter's like, uh, listen, <laughs> we have left everything and followed you. I mean, Peter's basically asking, look, dude, uh, we're not rich. Uh, we didn't have to give up wealth to follow you, but we did give it up. Like, we gave up our homes, our jobs, like, we gave it up and followed it. Basically, Peter's saying, so, like, are we set? Like, are we cool? <laughs> That's what Peter's basically at. Like, are we, are we good? Because <laughs> I want to get into the kingdom, too, you know what I'm saying? Jesus looks at him and he says, look, I'm, truly, I tell you, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father, children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children's lands with persecutions and in the age to come in eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Basically, Jesus is saying, dude, you will be blessed. You will be blessed. And may not be like you think. Like not everyone who follows Jesus is just going to have riches poured on them. Jesus teaches that his kingdom is the treasure of all treasures. You will be blessed now and forever. For the rich young man, he couldn't think about forever because he couldn't give up the now. He had a kingdom of this world. Jesus told him, he said, hey, if you sell all that, if you give all that away, you'll have treasure in heaven. I mean, it's not like Jesus was saying, dude, you're going to be so broke, it's going to be miserable. <laughs> like, no, that's not just Jesus' if, is, is imitation. Jesus in John chapter 10, verse 10 says, I've come to give life and give it to the fullest, the abundant life. We find true life in Jesus. But the difference is our lens changes. All of a sudden we realize, wow, all these things I used to think were really important are nothing compared to the surpassing riches of knowing Jesus. Jesus told him, you'll have treasures. It's just, it's in, it's in heaven. Treasures look a little different right now. The young man couldn't do it. See, a lot of us in the 99% follower category, we don't hesitate at all to call Jesus good. Like, he's good. He's really good. We love him. He's so good. Jesus even addresses that with this guy. Why do you call me good? No one's good except God. In other words, you really, are you calling me God? We don't hesitate to call Jesus good, but if we're really honest, somewhere in the back of our minds, we're still debating. We're debating this question. Is Jesus good enough? That's what we're wrestling with. Like, I want to follow Jesus, but is he good enough? Is he good enough to give up that thing, that one thing? Is he good enough to give up that behavior that I have, that I just, I use it to cope. I use it when I have a bad day. I go there in my mind. I know it's wrong. I know I shouldn't, but I do it anyway. Is he good enough to give up that material thing? Man, I just love it though. Like, come on, I, like, I can have Jesus plus this. It's not wrong to have this. It's wrong if it's the God of your heart. If you can't give it up, it owns you. You understand that? It's, it's an idol. We think Jesus is good, and he is, but is he good enough? Like, do you see Jesus as the greatest treasure you could ever possibly have in this life or the next? Is he so good that you'll willfully give up anything if that's the cost to follow him? Is he good enough to be the God of your heart? Not Jesus plus, but Jesus alone. Is he good enough? Jesus says this, Matthew chapter 10. He says this, Whoever finds his life will lose it. 
but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. He gives this paradoxical teaching in Matthew chapter 10. But what Jesus is doing is he's painting this picture that we're talking about right now. If you try to find your life, if you do everything you can and you try to check every box and you become hyper-religious and, and hyper-spiritual and you go to church enough and you read your Bible enough and, and you say Jesus is good enough and you do all these things, if you try to find your own life, earn your way, in other words, you'll lose it. But anyone who loses his life for my sake will find it. He gives this beautiful, poetic, paradoxical teaching where he's talking about the hope of losing our life. We look at our life in the immediate I was like, I, I can't give this stuff up, man, my wealth. You want me to give up my wealth? Come on, dude. Like, but imagine how my wealth could bless your ministry. Imagine how we could feed all these hungry people and, and buy clothes. And I mean, we come up with all these excuses about why this thing is worth holding on to. And Jesus is saying, look, if you lose your life, you'll find it. You'll find a better life, life in me. But if you hold on, if you try to build your own life, you'll never find it. You'll lose it. So, so imagine this, my, my, my boys, you guys know I have children, my, my boys love building sandcastles, they love it, every time we go to the beach, we build sandcastles and we, you have a blast. The other day we were playing outside in this beautiful warm spring weather and, uh, and they found these like buckets in the garage for building sandcastles in our beach section these shovels and buckets and stuff. And so they came outside and, and they had the hose running on, on some dirt and they were making mud and they were filling stuff up and trying to make these, I don't know, piles, castles out of mud. It wasn't working too well. But I want you to imagine that as they're making these droopy, sloppy mud castles, that someone out of the blue walks down the road and, and comes up to my two sons and says, wow, I like your castles. You know, I have a kingdom of my own. And if you want it, it's yours. And imagine if you, if you would, my two sons responding in this way of saying, you have a kingdom? Well, how big is it? Well, it's got castles, like real castles and meadows and horses. And it's majestic and beautiful and magical. It's, it's huge. In fact, each of you can have your own castle if you come. And what if my sons responded by saying, they look at their own little mud castles sagging and kind of melting in the water, and they look at him and they say, actually, we have our own castles. We have our own kingdom. We don't need that one. I think so many of us respond that way to Jesus. We look at the little kingdoms that we've made. We look at the lives that we've tried to build. And we know it's not perfect, and we know it's not beautiful, and it's kind of falling apart here and crumbling there and drooping here, but we look at it, and we have this offer of King Jesus saying, hey, follow me, and I'll give you the kingdom. But because we can't see that kingdom yet, because we can't imagine it or picture it, and there's no reference point of like, well, what does that look like? We just have to take his words for it. We kind of look at our sorry little kingdoms here and we're like, nah, we're good. We're good. Go ask someone else if they want your kingdom. We, we, got, a, we got a castle. We're so focused on building our kingdom here that we can't see the kingdom that Jesus is offering us. You believe Jesus is good, but do you believe Jesus is good enough 
good enough to surrender the kingdom that you're trying to build your own life, even though you can't see his fully yet, and trust that his life, his way, his presence, his love is far better than anything we could ever build for ourselves. Anyone who tries to find his life will lose it, but he who loses his life for my sake will find it, a much better life. Would you move from the 99% follower to the all-in follower tonight? Would you give him the one thing so that Jesus can be your only thing? Let's pray. Jesus, we love you, and we thank you for your words. As hard as they are, you offer hope, you offer beauty, you invite us into a relationship with you, your word promises that you offer better because you are better. Jesus, you're king. You're king of it all. May we not get so distracted by our little earthly mud castle kingdoms that we forsake the greatest kingdom of all. I pray that we would not have some one thing that we're holding back that would make us miss out on the best thing, which is a relationship with you. May we move from almost there, I'm almost there, 99%, would we fully surrender everything and give it all to you and discover for the first time what life in you looks like, that we found it because we've lost it. Jesus, I pray over this room, I pray your spirit would stir hearts, that repentance would take place, and that we would respond to your word with how you're leading us. I ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.